Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Dr. Faustus from The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe. And joining me for the discussion is first-time guest Bryce Peterson. Welcome, Bryce. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I'm very glad to have you on to talk some about Dr. Faustus and also Christopher Marlowe, two figures that I think loom large (laughs) in in, uh, literary history. So for anyone who's not familiar, The Tragical History of, Do- uh, of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus is a play by Kit Marlowe uh, that was based on German stories of a character named Faust, uh, kind of more folklore slash somewhat inspired by a real person. This play was most likely written between 1588 and 1589, though you can also find like 1592 and 1593 mentioned. I also saw some sites that just kind of said written a decade or so before it was first published yeah. in 1604, which I thought <laughs> was a nice right. way to handle it. Like right, <laughs> just yes. kind of vaguely it was, sometime earlier. It was written by someone sometime. Yes. <laughs> yes. And this tells the story of Dr. Faustus selling his soul to the devil for short, short term game, but long term regret. Um, Bryce, do you remember when you first came to this particular play? Yes. So I was in graduate school at Penn state where I was studying early modern literature and um, as part of graduate school, you know, we had to uh, combine or, or create these lists of all these texts we had to read for our comprehensive exams. And I think I had oh, you know, the memories that just have come know, flooding back. For I know, me. Sorry, the anxiety. Yeah, yeah. Call put to put down the anxiety a little bit. <laughs> and I'm on the list, I, ha- I gave my list to my advisor, and my advisor's like, "Hey, you need to have Marlowe on here." And I kind of grumbled a lot about it, um, but put Doctor Faustus on, and so that's the first time I read him. And it blew my mind after I read it. So now I teach it all the time. Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> so, so you are quite the expert for us to have on, on hand if you've taught it regularly. I, I hope so. I don't know about quite the expert, but maybe uh, <laughs> a, 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 a hopeful expert, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, this is one of those texts that I, I think I became aware of, like the Faust story before I knew yes. about Marlowe and Faustus. And even though my graduate studies ended up being American pop culture oriented. There was a time where I was leaning into doing Shakespeare, British lit and Shakespeare. Um, And so if you study much Shakespeare, you're going to come across Marlowe for a number of reasons, uh, valid and invalid. (laughs) You're going to come across the idea (laughs) of (laughs) Marlowe and his relationship with Shakespeare. And then also I was dabbling for a time with writing a novel about Elizabethan playwrights who were using their uh any of the the fantastical characters supernatural characters that were in their plays were characters that they had really encountered and had battled uh and marlo it was marlo and shakespeare were hanging out in like a buddy uh supernatural uh (laughs) you know saving the realm uh kind of comedy duo um (laughs) i think i ended up around 200 pages and never never quite finished it but because of that i had read a biography uh of Shakespeare and read up quite a lot on Marlowe as I was working on that particular project. Wow. Um, and one of my sons is named Kit, uh, inspired by by Kit Marlowe. So no this is, uh, yeah, I figure <laughs> that, <laughs> that because of that, like a uh, creative impulse that I had to try and explore, I ended up learning a lot more about Marlowe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I always have had that kind of fascination with the Faust uh, story and myth, uh, which does predate Marlowe, but I think this really codifies it. And it's a lot of the, uh, the versions that we encounter later on or, or, um, you know, stories inspired by it are, right. I think often inspired by the Marlowe version. Well, I mean, you're not alone in being perplexed or inspired by the Dr. Faustus character or even Kim Marlowe himself, because I you mean, know, Goethe has his own Faustus method, uh, mm-hmm. myth. Um, and I feel like, uh, the the myth just percolates and permeates um, in so many ways in terms of of our 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 literary history and our pop culture. So yeah, so I mean, yeah. your your son Kit's in good company. <laughs> yeah, um, like I I remember in film school, like studying a film class, we watched The Devil and Daniel Webster, which is like an American take yes. on on this and even on this podcast one time we we were doing an episode on the the sitcom dinosaurs and there was an episode called life in the faust lane uh oh, that we had discussed uh, where uh i a soul is sold i think for a collectible mug is what they had really wanted that's awesome 
in that. But yeah, it, it, like you said, it's um, something that seems to retain its fascination. I also remember seeing a silent German film. I think it was, or no, it was French. It was Murnau, wasn't it? Uh, of a Faust, uh, you know, uh, a retelling of Faust. Uh, so it seems like it, it gets adapted or, um, you know, transformed throughout history. Yeah. Um, and, well, yeah. and that's what the, the Marlowe version is. Um, you know, it's, it's adapting uh, this kind of German folklore slash urban right. legend <laughs> kind of, right. kind of figure uh, for, for the Elizabeth Elizabethan stage. And we, we still keep doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a little bit more trivia about this. So as with many Elizabethan plays, there are multiple versions of this play that exist. Uh, in this case, there's really two primary ones, a, a 1604 quarto version with 13 scenes and a 1616 quarto version with 20 scenes. Marlowe died in 1593. <laughs> so uh, we just need to know both existing versions are printed more than a decade after his death. It is uh, generally from what I saw and my understanding is the uh, shorter version is presumed to have been written more by Marlowe and there was some stuff added by other authors to the other version. Is that what your, yes. your understanding is? Yeah. So what happens is in 1602, uh, Philip Henslow, who is the proprietor of the Rose theater asks actors to add to the a text. And so mm-hmm. you get what's then the 1616 B text, which has um, more characters in it. Um, it's, it's not as, it's not as short, and um, I, and it's almost an interesting in a study of itself. Like, well, what did Henslow feel like was needed <laughs> to make this <laughs> to make this play more palatable for people? But yeah, you're right. Um, there, there's the 1604 choral version, which is was considered kind of the, the good text, and then the 1616, mm-hmm. which is considered the the bad, not the bad text, but a, a different text. We should say right. Uh, yeah, I think more comedy was added and length may have been it because this is a pretty short play, actually, yes, for for um, the time period. Um, like you compare this to some of the standard lengths of Shakespeare plays. It's like, oh, this would be a breeze <laughs> yes. to go sit through yes. this one. <laughs> yeah, especially, you know, plays during the time period are about two to three hours. Um, mm-hmm. And Shakespeare's actually writing a lot. A lot of his plays are over 3000 words, which is, you know, like Hamlet's, I think, 32,000 or 3200, excuse me. 3,000 words, 3,200 words. And um, and that would run like five hours. If you were speaking really, really quickly, you'd get three and a half hours, maybe. Um, but this one, easy. Easy two-hour play, maybe even less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would believe it. I mean, there's definitely some chance or, or opportunity to like spread some stuff out with some cool uh, tricks of the stage right. uh, when you get the demons entering and, and exiting and, uh, you know, a performance of, of <laughs> yeah, the, the, the seven deadly sins. Like I could see that being longer than what's on the page. Right. Uh, I could also really see some actors hamming it all up <laughs> Yes, <laughs> as, yes. as they get the chance to play some of these characters. Uh, so maybe it gets lengthened to just a bit in performance, but it's, it's a pretty quick read um, or, uh, or listen if you like I know there's multiple uh, like BBC re- recording adaptations of these so if you if you're interested there's there's ways to consume this pretty quickly if there's not a play being performed of it in your vicinity uh, so as I kind of hinted at earlier the Faust story seems to have existed as essentially German folklore before it was printed as a book titled Historia uh, von de Johann Faustin in 1587. This book is a source for many Faust adaptations, including Marlowe's play and subsequent versions of the Faust legend bo- often borrow from Marlowe's play. And then there's also other famous ad- adaptations. You mentioned Guta. And then there's um, the, uh, isn't there a, uh, a uh, opera that's um, adapting it, I think is, is another yeah, one that a, a lot of people familiar. are kind of familiar with. Um and there's been many adaptations of Marlowe's play, including, I mean, a lot of BBC radio performances yeah. going back to 1932. <laughs> I was looking at the list. I'm like, oh, okay. I think we're past a dozen at this point. Um, and interestingly, that German folklore is based on a real person, Johann George Faust, who lived in the late 1400s and early 1500s. And depending on the source you're looking at, he was right. an alchemist or an astrologer or a doctor or a physician or a philosopher. But it's mostly agreed that he was a fraud and a trickster. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> and he was denounced by the catholic church while he was alive as a blasphemer uh who was in yeah. league with the devil and he died in an explosion that was believed to have occurred in an alchemical experiment that he was doing mm-hmm. in his apartment um suspicious, sounds like a character right? yes <laughs> <laughs> suspicious and what's mm-hmm. interesting is in this time period you have other figures like john d 
um, mm-hmm. who's famous, and a lot of YA books will pick up John D. But a lot of these characters, I mean, are, are figures who do medicine, alchemy, astrology, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Just because in the time period, like, if you were a rich guy, that's pretty much you had all the time in the world just to do whatever you wanted. And so you could be, yeah. you know, <laughs> an alchemist, a physician, a philosopher, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways. Well, even uh, like uh, the character of Faustus, like he says, I'm kind of bored because I've worked yes. out the limits of logic, medicine, law, and religion. Yeah. Those are the only things you would study, right? right. <laughs> like what yeah. else is there? So now yes. I'm going to go into the dark arts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And uh, as we've kind of hinted at as well, Christopher Marlowe, known as Kit, uh, is a really interesting figure, to put it mildly. He was kind of a superstar in his day, and he died young at the age of 29. His death is mysterious, and has mm-hmm. led to a lot of conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. multiple nonfiction books are trying to work out how he died, why and how he died, and yeah. you know why he was where he was when he died. Um, there's not a whole lot of argument that he was killed in a small room in a bar. When he was stabbed yep. either above his right eye or through his right eye. I see both. <laughs> I've, I've yep. seen both yep. as explanations. Yep. I think being stabbed above the right eye, it's I, that'd be a very violent kill shot. But through the eye, yeah. I think we can all understand. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and then whether he was killed in a drunken fight over a barbell, if he was being targeted for being an atheist, if this was part of a larger scheme involving Queen Elizabeth's spy ring that he may or may not have been a part of, whether this was retaliation against controversial content of his plays, these are all theories that have been explored and will continue to be explored. I just finished reading a novel called um, Tip for the Hangman that was about uh, Marlowe as a member of Queen Elizabeth's spy ring that kind of ends up getting yeah. in over his head and taken out <laughs> is, is the end of that. Well, I mean, if you could not ask for a saucier background for a playwright <laughs> in this time period. And what's crazy yeah. is, so he's born in 1564, um, which is the same year as Shakespeare. Um, and he goes to college in 1584. So he's 20 years old, but sometime in between, uh, or, or excuse me, he, he goes to college at 1580 and sometimes between, sometime between 1580 and 1584, he takes like a two, three year absence to do something, which mm-hmm. we later find out is on behalf of the country. And he does it again later when he's doing his, he's doing his masters at Cambridge, um, yeah. in 1587, and he and he he does something so significant that that the Queen's Privy Council. So I mean, this is essentially like you know the cabinet for the president. Um, writes a letter to Cambridge saying, "Hey, we know he was kind of like absent a lot, so just give him the degree." I mean, can you imagine if you know a classmate of yours has his letter from Joe, you know, President Biden's cabinet saying hey he was doing things for quote on behalf of the country so just give him his degree yeah I'm, that's, that's what bizarre. a lot of this novel that i just read uh, like explores like what would this have been yeah. that he did and, and and i mean so he's so he's in contact with um you know people who do espionage for the crown um and but he's also doing weird things like in 1592 he was deported from the netherlands for attempting to circulate forged gold coins <laughs> so you're like mm-hmm. was he doing like monetary things i know it's 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 a complete it's a complete mystery but what i found is interesting is as uh the clergyman thomas barnes says about his death he says okay during his life marlowe said that that the savior was a deceiver and moses was a conjurer and therefore it was god's providence that took his own hand with a knife and and he stabbed himself and so it's like we don't even know who killed him was if, if it was himself or if it was uh supposedly ingram frizzer um who's in in that rooming house or that tavern house and so i mean just a lot of questions yeah and just feeds speculation for centuries at this point yes um yes. that that people are 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 just imagining what those gaps in his life were and again his what his death was um in that uh in that novel i was taking a stab at writing he was gonna be faking his death at the end (laughs) what's gonna be (laughs) oh that's good uh, i like that (laughs) um and and because marlowe's death aligns with the ascent of shakespeare you mentioned they were you know same age there have also been theories that marlowe faked his own death and then wrote under the pen name william shakespeare (laughs) it is the official position of the protagonist podcast that william shakespeare wrote the plays attributed to william shakespeare that's that's where i'm at on all those (laughs) (laughs) but i mean the fact that they're born the same year and he dies at Mm -hmm. 29 
And I mean, during the time, I mean, Tamburlaine one and two, which are his first plays that he wrote, were were popular. And so it's kind of a a huge literary tragedy to think, oh, my gosh, like if he had had Mm -hmm. the same time that Shakespeare would have had. What? I mean, would we would we now be talking about Kim Marlowe instead of Shakespeare as, you know, as kind of like the 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 prince of English literature. Um, And so it's it's both a tragedy and a mystery that he died so Mm -hmm. young. Ugh. Yeah, and I think that just feeds into that fascination and kind of the mythologizing that happens yeah. um, around him. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I mean, it's just so straight because he was, like, like I said, like he was a known public figure, but also maybe yeah. a spy. Like, what? Yes. <laughs> What's happening right. here? <laughs> um, but he's like 20. What I mean, yeah. What 20 year olds do you know? They're like, yeah, I've been doing big time spy stuff for the government. Yeah, and also writing some of the great works of English oh, literature. Oh, yeah, <laughs> on the on side. side. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, well, we are going to discuss one of those works, Dr. Faustus. But before we do that, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash podcast and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access uh, to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering uh, as episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the summary of Dr. Faustus. Dr. Faustus was low-born, but has worked to become educated and well-known, but he is feeling trapped by the limits of learning about logic, medicine, law, and religion, so naturally he is tempted to turn to studying magic, because what else is there? As he (laughs) contemplates this, Good Angel appears and tries to dissuade him from this path, and Bad Angel appears and tells him to give it a go. Uh, Two magicians, Valdez and Cornelius, teach him the black arts. Word gets out that Faustus has been studying with Valdez and Cornelius. Traditional scholars are very concerned about what this means for Faustus. Faustus is able to summon a devil named Mephistopheles um, or Mephistopheles came of his own accord because the the demon doesn't like to be told that he was forced to do anything (laughs) like this gets debated (laughs) within the text. Uh, But Faustus meets Mephistopheles uh, and Faustus tells Mephistopheles to go to Lucifer and make a deal for Faustus's soul. When Mephistopheles returns, Faustus has a brief debate about whether this is wisdom, but then he signs the contract with his own blood. Uh, And according to this contract, Mephistopheles will serve Marlo, uh, not Marlo, sorry, will serve Faustus for 24 years. And then Lucifer can claim Faustus body and soul. Faustus asks, for a wife first but Mephistopheles convinces him this is a bad idea Uh, he asks for books of knowledge and Mephistopheles conjures a book for him to study when Faustus asks who made the universe though Mephistopheles refuses to answer which again makes Faustus wonder if he has made a good choice Good angel, bad angel arrive and try to guide Faustus, but then Lucifer arrives with personifications of the seven deadly sins, and this distracts Faustus and just kind of sets him on this path that he's already on. Faustus and Mephistopheles travel Europe. They visit the Pope and play a series of tricks on him. Like they're just pranking the Pope for a scene. Um, (laughs) And uh, we can contextualize this with the church of England and the relationship with the Catholic church in a few minutes about why they would have a whole scene, just mocking the Pope. Uh, And then Faustus travels to the court of the German emperor and who asked him to conjure Alexander the great in a vision. Faustus does this, but a knight in the court mocks this as a trick. So Faustus makes the knight sprout antlers Um, as the 24 years of the deal are coming near to ending. Faustus begins to be filled with dread and regret to impress a group of scholars. He summons Helen of Troy and talks about her beauty. Then he confesses that he has made uh, this deal with the devil and the scholars say they will pray for him the night before the 24 hours are up. Faustus is overcome with remorse and begs for mercy but at midnight a group of devils arrive and carry him to hell in the morning uh scholars find him and hold a funeral for for faustus the end it's a pretty yes. quick uh rise and fall for him like okay yes. i'm gonna get these powers i'm gonna go torment the pope uh make make anyone who makes fun of me look silly right. uh, conjure up helen of troy and make out uh, there right then, yes so <laughs> of course on stage yes <laughs> yes uh and then uh then die that will be the end of it yeah. um why do you think that this is a story that Marlowe gravitated towards to tell at this time? Because uh, the, the Elizabethan stage, you couldn't just tell any story. It right. was heavily moderated and censored what could and could not be done. Uh, it's a, astounding sometimes what they do to push the boundaries uh, within that moderation <laughs> and yes. that censorship. Yeah. But uh, do you have a sense of why this would be a story that Marlowe says, this is the right moment for the, for me to write this play? You know, that is such a good question. So this play, you know, Queen Elizabeth has has come to the throne. 
um the well for the past several decades the 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 nation of England has really had kind of an identity crisis in terms of religion. You know, Henry VIII's like, hey, I'm going to get divorced uh, because I need a male son, and Anne Boleyn is pretty cute. And so he gets a divorce, uh, not just with his wife, but also with, you know, the Catholic Church. Um, but then he dies. His son, Edward VI, rules for a little bit. But then he died, and Edward VI was very, uh, had a lot of Protestant influence from uh those adults he was he was young he's a young kid and so he had adult kind of um counselors who are ruling the country for him essentially uh, but then he dies and then his sister or half sister mary comes to the throne she's catholic but then she dies and then elizabeth comes to the throne she's Protestant. so back and forth back and forth and so here i think as you kind of alluded to earlier is that scene with the pope is you have uh marlo really drawing on the audience's um frustrations and anxieties uh with the catholic church but so that you, so you have catholicism on one side but on the other side this is when you start really having because obviously when you change churches from catholic to protestant in england it doesn't happen overnight mm -hmm. and so what you're seeing here is finally i think uh the influence of calvinism in religious culture more popularly where you know and in, in the Catholic tradition, you get to do good acts and good works, and that is going to help you access God's grace. But in Calvinism, which is really starting to be thread through the Church of England, you don't have any choice. God chooses you to be elected or saved or not. And I think this play is really ramping up the anxiety of, oh my gosh, who chooses if I'm damned? Do I, do I damn myself or is it God mm -hmm. damning me? Which is terrifying to think of, right. of God um, being able to do that. So what's interesting is that the play opens in that prologue where it lists all the things it's going to talk about. It says, hey, we've talked about like all these cool Roman things before, but now we're going to tell you about just this German guy. And there's this, there's this line that is terrifying. And it talks and it compares um, Faustus to Icarus. And it says, you know, Icarus is, you know, swollen with cunning of a self-conceit. His waxen wings did mount above his reach. And melting heavens conspired his overthrow. And that line is haunting. Because it's, it's not Icarus flying too high the sun. It's the fact that the heavens are like, I'm going to take this guy out. Yeah. I, he's going <laughs> down. Uh. Um, and the fact that God might conspire against you and damning you, I think really troubles the English men and women of that time. Yeah, because there's a level of agency that's going on when it says, you know, the heavens conspire right. uh, with that. Like, it's not, you know, the sun's heat melted the wings. It's, mm -hmm. there is uh, a choice being made yeah. to take out Icarus, right? Yeah. Or, or Faustus in this case. Which is terrifying. And I think too, you know, this time, um, what what's called then natural philosophy, which is called now science, is starting to really um, become a discipline that is picking up speed in terms of scientific advancement. And so then the question is, well, what, what are we allowed to know? And what should we know? And that's one of Faustus's great kind of uh, tragic flaws is the fact that he wants to know more than he should. Mm -hmm. And that's not okay. And so I think you have these two anxieties. One, am I saved? And two, what should I know or what can I know? That's really, yeah, it, it, you know. and I think that gets into us. I mean, another kind of tension that was very present in Elizabethan England about um, trying to ascend beyond your station and your place, yeah. like knowing knowing your place and contentment with your place, and not attempting to exceed that. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and it's funny you bring that up because at, at this time, people are not only concerned about your place, but specifically about actors trying to take on different roles on the stage. So there's what's called the anti-theatrical um, treatises where these Puritan ministers are like, oh my gosh, you've got all these actors who are peasants and they think they can dress up as a king or at men as women because, you know, obviously in this time period, um, men in England were only on the stage. And so any, any woman you saw on the stage, including Shakespeare's plays, were all played by men. And they're terrified. They're like, oh my gosh, God, you know, jo God made Joe Dorowski Joe. 
And if Joe's on the stage pretending to be someone else, he is like in direct conflict with God's creative power. And it's, and it's terrifying. And so that, that anxiety about who you are, where you should be, what you should know is definitely present in this play. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I mean, one thing that I always remember is like one of the first things Shakespeare did when he started to have an income was buy a coat of arms, right? Like, okay, yeah, right. got to establish family, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> got to establish the family's uh, worth essentially. Yeah. And he tried, and he actually tried a couple times before he's actually mm-hmm. uh, able to get it. Yeah. Oh no, that, that's really interesting. Um, all those things. And it's when you start to look at, plays from this era, including a lot of Shakespeare's plays. And just like keeping in mind that um, ping ponging about what religion it's legal to be a, like, like not just to be a member of, but that you are legally required to be a member of this particular right. religion. Uh, right. There's, I, I think it opens up a lot of understanding about some of the themes and some of the tensions that are present in these plays. Yeah. Um, you, you had said that Faustus's, one of his flaws is that desire to know more, right? right and, you know, to, right. to push these boundaries and exceed the edges. Um, I, I think a lot of times, just because of how we consume these Faust stories in everything from like kids' cartoons to, sure. uh, you know, <laughs> to, to, to uh, you know, movies and other, other things, we assume it's like, uh, like a worldly greed, not necessarily an intellectual greed. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, or, or or um sometimes it's, it's like forms of lust, which we do get. Like when the first thing he asks for is a wife, and we also see him summoning Helen of Troy, like he said, to make out with her. Right. But it is interesting <laughs> that one of the first things that he actually successfully does once he has a demon under his control is like, "Hey, bring me books <laughs> to, to yes. learn. I want yes. to expand my knowledge." And that I I think falls outside a lot of the 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 more pop cultural versions of Faust, where it is often. Yeah greed or pride uh you know are are at the root of someone making these particular kinds of deals and it's and it's a it's a it's a weird hamartia that you're right you don't see right when i think of hamartia i always think of rick riordan's you know percy jackson where he actually brings that word up (laughs) and percy jackson very you know self-consciously is like my hamartia is i take care of my friends i I care about my friends more than myself which you know Mm -hmm. that's like harry potter's hamartia um and if you were to read a book today, I think where like, I just want to learn more than anyone else. You wouldn't be like, well, that's a book I want to read. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but what's interesting here is I think the the religious consequences, mm-hmm. the fact that he wants to know, because it's not just that he wants to know, but he wants to know. And that knowledge gives him power beyond his capacity. Because at the very beginning, as you mentioned before, it lists all the different disciplines that he rejects. It goes through philosophy, law, medicine religion but in each of those he talks about what skills he wished he had and and i think of medicine he's like i wish you know i could have i can't bring people back to life essentially so there's things that he can't do that he wants and specifically that power to bring back to life uh uh that's only god's power mm-hmm. yeah and and that idea of the you know the these tragic flaws that are what always makes them tragic is that you can see why they're good and they they're good motivations Sure. In one sense, but the imbalance uh, or, or uh, in different situations, they can become, uh, you know, the source of tragedy uh, yeah. and like wanting to do more than anyone has ever done before in, in medicine. That's not bad. <laughs> but no. trying to bring people back from the dead, it's like, OK, <laughs> you're entering God's, yeah. God's realm here, <laughs> which was, is something that's going to be played with quite a lot in uh, future centuries in literature. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, know, men and, playing God in some way. <laughs> And I'd be curious, I haven't actually looked at this, but I'd be curious about Mary Sidney, or not Mary Sidney, um, writer. Mary Shelley? Uh, yeah, Mary Shelley. I know, my, my brain's still stuck in the 16th century with Mary Sidney. Um, but, you know, <laughs> uh, you know Frankenstein, um, and because and, they refer, I mean, there's really obvious references to Paradise Lost in that text. Um, but I'd be curious, I, didn't, I haven't read it with an eye for, for oh, Faustus. Looking for Faustus, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I did a... Um, yeah. Our colleague Dennis Cutchins edited an essay collection about Frankenstein, and I did a an essay in there about uh, an X Men comic book when they battle Frankenstein. Oh, nice! <laughs> um, <laughs> in there, uh, but I definitely was not thinking about Faustus when I was doing it. But I, I know, like one thing they did, uh, Dennis Cutchins and Dennis Perry in this essay collection was they were looking at all the things that feel like they are 
Frankenstein stories, like Jurassic Park, you know, is a, is a Frankenstein story, but it is yeah. also, you know, yeah. predating that it's a Faustus story of, you right. know, humans dabbling in realms that yeah. belong to God, <laughs> right. you know, right. essentially uh, with this. And I, I think that's a tension that we, we see not only in fiction, but I mean, that's kind of like the whole, um, you know, postmodernism is looking around and saying, uh, we have atomic power and we just used it to ravage <laughs> the earth. Yeah. Like we have the power of God. Like what, what are we doing now? Yeah. Uh, what, what has meaning when we have actually unleashed this on earth? Um, and, and so it's something that we see, you know, still, you know, modernists and postmodernists are like grappling with like these emerging technologies and saying, this feels like we're leaving the realm of what humans have done ever. And now we're, we're getting more and more and more powerful. And there's a disquiet that uh, as they're trying to understand their place uh, anymore, because it doesn't fit into the traditional frames. Right. And and what's interesting with the the Faustus narrative um, is that he starts off in act one and act two with these really huge grandiose plans for Mephistopheles. He says, listen, Mm -hmm. I want to know about, I want to see like the, the cosmos and the skies. He actually goes kind of into um, question about like, you know, uh, how do the planets turn and revolve? Um, I want to, you know, I want to basically create an empire over all the earth. I want to see all the earth and these huge, huge dreams for which he's going to use his uh, magic. But by, but by act, by act, by act, he slowly devolves into just playing petty tricks, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah, tricks almost. Yeah, well, it's interesting because in the first act, you have you know Marlo says, "I want to, I want to go check out the, the heavens and learn about the heavens," but then the last scene in, in that first act is his servant, you know, uh, Wagner uh, or Wagner, I guess if it's German, um, you know, saying I'm he's playing tricks on his fellow servants, and so what happens is like he's like Marlo turns. I mean, has becomes goes from Doctor Faustus. Well, okay, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna realize right here right now. I always mix up Faustus and Marlowe when I talk. <laughs> I did it. I did it in my summary. Yeah. Uh, so yes. yeah, I had to do a quick cor- correction I, there when I was I reading think, off my summary that I wrote. <laughs> this is a side note, I guess. I think it's because Marlowe really echoes the like the, the Faustus character because I mean. Uh, Thomas Kidd, who's also a playwright at this time period, said that he talked with Marlowe, and Marlowe said that Christ was a bastard and was, you know, was gay. And it was his habit to, quote, jest and at scripture and jibe at prayer and to strive to confute what has been spoken by the prophets and holy men. And, like, that's Faustus. And so I guess in my mind, they become one, which is probably not the best. Um, but anyway, so so Marlowe, or there, there I go again, Faustus becomes almost like his servants and loses that drive for knowledge. And it's almost, it's almost as if the play is opening up Faustus and saying, listen, if you want knowledge and you go beyond your station, God's going to just turn you back into um, the, the basically the know nothing that you really are. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, so that, I think that's a fascinating part, um, of the play is not just like the, those desires that Faustus has to do more and be better, but what, what then actually happens is that he doesn't, he doesn't end up being that great. Yeah. He, I, I mean, like in the end, it's kind of like, ah, I'm bringing Helen Troy because everyone said she was hot. Yeah. No, straight <laughs> Here up. She is. It's kind of like, like that, that's what you're doing in your like your last days with this power. Yeah. But, but I mean, you mentioned in your in your brief summary, I mean, he gets Mephistopheles. He signs the contract with his blood, despite God trying to tell him no. Right. So he, he first cuts himself and then the blood congeals. It's like God's like, hey, I'm going to help you out, Faustus. I'm going to make it so you can't sign that contract. He cuts himself again. He gets the bloody signs, uh, the contract. And then the first thing he does with his contracted devil is say, make me a wife. <laughs> it's like, wait, did you just forget about all your grand plans? Like that's, that, yeah. this isn't the purpose. And I mean, I think it illustrates the, um, I think the, 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 I don't know how to say this. The the facade that some of these kind of great big 
plans mm. he has are like it's is it really about those plans? Maybe, but maybe it's just about lust. And that's what makes it a good play. Because you never know which one it yes. is. And I think there's something about like this idea of like, if only I had you know, whatever it is, more time, more opportunity, more yes. resources, I'd be able to accomplish X, Y, or Z. And how many of us would end up just kind of laying around? <laughs> like, yeah, oh, right. I can relax a little. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and not actually go accomplish the great things that we kind of have in our head that we're, we're being prevented yeah. from achieving for whatever it is that's all like that. And Faustus is like given kind of a, a blank check to go do anything right. you can imagine. Uh, right. And it ends up like I'm gonna go play pranks on the Pope and yes. <laughs> you know and 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 summon some dead, some dead people uh, to to have some chats. Yeah, and yeah, and and it was interesting <laughs> the anxiety you brought up. I, the, the reason I keep coming back to anxiety is that this play really is about anxiety, anxiety about your relationship with God, anxiety about what you should know or or shouldn't know, anxiety about what you should do or shouldn't do, but also the anxiety about time. One of them, I think one of the most poignant moments at the end of the play, Faustus is for the whole play is waffled. And that's, and that's something to really note is that Faustus from the get go. Isn't like, I'm, you know, I imagine like on Emperor's new groove, the little devil, um, who's on Cusco's shoulder. He's like, I'm going to lead down the path. I, I want rocks. You know, the idea of shoulder angels, it must predate this, but this feels like it really is like solidifying the idea of shoulder angels. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I'd be curious. That'd be an interesting article to write. <laughs> the the origin of shoulder angels um but i mean at the very end i mean so the whole play he's waffling between should i do this should i not yes or no and at the end the one thing that he um talks about is time he says oh my gosh i have only one hour left and then he talks some more and then he goes oh my gosh i only have 30 minutes left he says, I, I wish I had eternity. I wish I, you know, I would, but the anxiety of time is clicking or, or, or ticking. And that as humans, we don't have control over time. And that becomes this underlying anxiety. Like, oh my gosh, I wish I could control my fate. I wish I could control time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, we saw when he had time, it's not like he was in a great rush to accomplish any of right. the things that he had, he had uh, thought about. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> uh, it's only when, when the time feels like it's slipping away that it's like, oh no. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so a quick uh, search uh, and this I'm going to be turning to Wikipedia here about yes. sh- shoulder angels says that yes. there oh, is yeah. a early Christian book, the shepherd of Hermas around 140 or 150 uh, AD that has a reference to the idea of two angels. It says there are two angels with a man, one of righteousness and the other of iniquity. And then hmm. it seems like uh, from there, like you can start to pick up threads here and there. Um, but, uh, and, and then like it's, uh, like in modern media, it says uh, things like um, adventures that Tintin comics use it and, you know, things like that. And yeah, it becomes like yeah. just everywhere uh, by, by mid 1900s. It's just a, a trope <laughs> that's super common. Uh, but it, I was I, I I do remember the first time I was reading this play being like, it really just says like good angel, and bad angel. Yeah, <laughs> like it's just, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what this is, is the shoulder angels. Like he says, like, like Emperor's new groove. I, I like, you know, I just imagine Patrick Warburton's voice yes. um, doing, doing, doing these kinds of characters. Uh, and I, I, I just think that's fascinating that um, there's this play that is on the one hand, so nuanced. And as you said, like there's ambiguity and there's uh cultural context. that's going to like inform our understanding of all of it. Uh, but on the other hand, like, there's really simple, like just a good angel saying, Hey, that's a bad idea. And a bad angel saying, that's a really good idea. You should go do it. Yeah. And like, there's, yeah. there's no nuance to that. <laughs> like the audience is being right. really explicitly told, you know, what, what is the right choice and the wrong choice. And to be able to operate on those layers of what feels like almost like a uh, simple children's fable. Yeah. And then also, uh, you know, incredibly nuanced and am- ambiguous in terms of the meaning that we're supposed to take away from it. Like, it, yeah. it, it feels like that would be a difficult thing to achieve uh, to, to carry that, yeah. you know, both of those off. But I think this, this is one of those texts that does do it, do that. Yeah. And, and I, and I, and I think that's, I think you hit it, the nail right on the head is that's what I think makes this a great play is the fact that it, you don't have to, you don't have to know anything about Elizabethan culture to read it and you mm-hmm. will get the, the anxiety and frustration and yearning that Faustus has and you got it. 
but then you start <laughs> peeling back the layers about religion. Um, we haven't talked about the clowns at all, but you know what the clowns are doing, uh, you know, the, the demonology. Um, and that's, I mean, and, and that just adds so much more richness to it. Besides the fact that there are actually potentially using the language to summon demons that would actually like, you know, have been used. So the question is like, well, are we actually summoning a demon in the theater right now? Like we're doing uh, on play, like some of the the text is being spoken that you might find in actual, like supposed dark art books. Right. Right. Yeah. It's it's the text and they're doing the actions. And that Mm -hmm. also blends like the stage with reality as, 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 as if you went on Broadway and in some, in some play, the person on stage was hacking a bank and you could see the screen and they're stealing money, but they were actually doing it. That's what it'd be like. Like, wait, oh my gosh, that's not like an actual, like that's not like a fake screen. They're actually hacking that bank and stealing money. They're actually summoning devils. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think that also speaks to um, Marlowe's um, not avant-garde, but kind of uh, rebellious slash on the edge. I mean, of, of society type of attitude i mean he was arrested in 1593 the year of his death uh mm-hmm. by the privy council the same privy council that gave him that, the letter that, to graduate yeah so um, that kind of said hey wink wink he's done all his coursework right we're all on board with this yeah right 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 but he got really he got you know he got uh arrested for religious heterodoxy mm-hmm. <laughs> like you are saying crazy stuff and, and now you and that it makes sense because he was <laughs> yes and well and and the thing is like all these plays had to like go through layers before they could ever be performed and it, sometimes it's like why was this on the stage when everyone was so controlling uh yeah. in in particular when it came to religion um i I, rem- I just saw some reference that like in the time this play became a little bit scandalous because people were uncomfortable with the the summoning of the demons on the stage yep. and it yep. made me yep. think a little bit about like uh the the satanic panic of the 80s around dungeons and dragons is like okay oh yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. you know that's but, exactly but that, right yeah it, it's like on the one hand you want to separate it but on the other like in in some ways like marlo's i'm sure marlo reveled in it <laughs> oh, there yeah. Was, oh yeah <laughs> when, <laughs> from what i know of this man uh hearing that there was real concern about them summoning demons he's like we need more special effects going you know <laughs> let's keep pushing yeah. this even further uh on them but it, i th- there are times where uh things that are these these fictional texts uh make people uncomfortable because of the the subject matter they're starting to delve into and it becomes mm-hmm. like this blend of uh fiction and the real world and supernatural all seems to be melding uh in people's minds as as they're looking at these things and and devils for this time period were were weren't supernatural i mean they were supernatural in the mm-hmm. fact that they weren't earthly but they were real right. Mm-hmm. And and that's terrifying. So yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else about Doctor Faustus as a character that you think is worth digging into? Um, besides like this, this what is the actual motivation? We've talked some about. I think yeah. he he almost becomes very pathetic by the end. Um, yeah, like it's uh, like the the regret is there from like hour one of him making this deal and to yeah. see it like swallow yeah. him so whole it, yeah. it is uh it, it feels simultaneously inevitable but also like you could have made so many different choices <laughs> other than being <laughs> here <laughs> where you are right now <laughs> and I, th- I think that's what makes him such a pathetic character pathetic in this in the sense of pathos not in like mm-hmm. the like the the current sense Path- pathetic in the sense of emotion provoking is because mm-hmm. he's never solely on board with selling his soul and um i think one of the best moments at the beginning of act two where faustus ha- is is like basically having you don't remember in lord of the rings where golem slash smeagol talks to himself and you mm-hmm. in the movies you switch back from you know Smeagol to the Golem, Smeagol to the Golem. I mean, he has that moment where he says, you know, now Faustus must thou needs be damned, and it is you know he's like, I and Faustus will turn to God again, to God. And he says he loves thee not. I mean, I can just imagine you know a Golem's voice, but it's the fact mm-hmm. that it's the fact that he is telling himself, you can do this, you'll be okay. Yeah. Versus, no, you're not. You're toast. God hates you. That and I think that that religious tension is so palpable for the historical context we're talking about. But I think that is a part of faith is like yes. this idea of 
I know there's certain expectations for what it means to be a good Christian uh, or, or, you know, whatever belief system you belong to. And then if you, if you falter, it becomes that kind of debate. It's like, well, can I come back from this? (laughs) Um, And and I I think at times in our, uh, you know, in religious traditions, the goal to keep people on the path makes being off the path sound so scary that the second anyone takes a small step or an infraction in some way, they feel like it's over that, you know, the the game's lost. Uh, and, And that imbalance of, uh, the ideas of justice and mercy uh, seems to be something that's at play, uh, you know, in 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 this uh, performance of, of Faustus here. And 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 the question of you know, can I actually make amendment, or can I the 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 word in the religious context we repent, but I think you could take it outside of the religious context as well and say, can can I can I actually come back from making this huge mistake? Because we've all mm-hmm. made huge mistakes, really dumb mistakes. Or maybe I'm speaking for everyone else, and, and I've made you know I've made really dumb. We would mistakes. not presume the listeners of this podcast have ever made a mistake, right? Yes, <laughs> but you know, as part of the, as part of the human condition, you know, we make mistakes, and I think the anxiety and the desire to overcome those mistakes is there in the play. But then the fact that we he always falls back into it. He wants to do better, but he doesn't. But he does want to do better, but he can't. And that just speaks to the human condition, I think, in ways that are really provocative. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, and it makes that um, getting into that that kind of Calvinist idea, right? It right. becomes yeah. like just another layer. And I, lo- I I think good, really great texts can stand on their own. But then when you start to look at the references they're making, that's going to add to your understanding of it. When you start to look at the historical context that was made, that's going to add to it. Yeah. Uh, and it's like opening up even more fully uh, as you as you look at it. But without those things, it still works um, yes. as a text. When things become yeah. so intertextual, like there's no meaning without understanding these references or 20 other things, I think we've lost our way as storytellers. Uh, yeah. And this is an example of a text that um, is – on the one hand, like so simple, it does get adapted to like Looney Tune cartoons, right? <laughs> like you can find <laughs> versions of this, you know, that that it works there. Uh, but as you, you as you increase your understanding of of history and Marlowe's life and the religious situation of England and also great questions of religious philosophy throughout time, mm-hmm. like all of that makes it feel like it, it's it's caring even more than than what we saw originally. Yeah. But yeah. you don't have to have all that to appreciate it. Exactly. That's why I think this is great. Exactly. <laughs> And what's interesting, you know, the the play's title, the full title, you know, the, tra- the tragical history of the life and death of Dr. Faustus, the the play, you know, something we haven't talked about really um, is the play's concern about what it means to live and what it means to die. Most scholars, when they come to this play, say, okay, when and why is Faustus damned? And those are important mm-hmm. questions. But what they haven't talked about, and this is actually what uh, Garrett Sullivan at Penn State and I are writing an article on this right now. Um, what they haven't talked about is the fact that Faustus, is, is the question, when does Faustus actually die? Because at first blush, mm. it seems that it's at the end, Act 5, where right. Mephistopheles yeah. and, Lucifer, and Lucifer come for him, and he says, ah, oh, Mephistopheles, and then he's, he's, gone, he's gone. But what's interesting is in Calvinist theology, the reprobate are those who God, you know, chooses not to be elect, not to give grace to. The reprobate are already always dead. And so in the early modern period, the concepts of life and death are much more fluid and not tied to biology as much as a 21st century definition of life and death are. And so for uh, an early modern person in the audience, to live or to die doesn't mean to be biologically animate or not. It also means to be spiritually infused with god's grace or not and the thing is is tragedy the genre of tragedy is about a great person who makes mistakes and then dies at the end but what's interesting about faustus is that Marlowe is presenting a protagonist who doesn't die at the end but actually is dead from the very beginning and that is what's tragic for Marlowe about Faustus is that Faustus, according to Calvinism, didn't ever have a choice to live. Didn't ever have a choice you know, uh, to to fill avoid um, damnation, basically. Yeah, yeah. He, he was dead from the very beginning, and so that's kind of um, an interesting spin on the play when you think about uh, what what does it mean to be alive and, and what does it mean to die. 
All right. The last thing I wanted us to touch a little bit on before we we wrap up is Mephistopheles. Yes. This demon is fascinating to me. Yes. He's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like we get lines where uh, it's again, like there's this ambiguity and contradiction that seems to be present as like, who's in control? Uh, Is he in hell right now? Is he not? Uh, Is is he damned forever? Uh, You know, what, what, what exactly is going on with Mephistopheles? Uh, uh, I keep trying to it say is, Marvel. It is, it is, okay, first of all, it is, <laughs> it is the hardest name ever um, to yes. say. <laughs> yeah. Mar- Marvel has a, has a, a devil character named Mephisto, and I keep heading towards oh, the Mephisto, and then oh, I've got to say yes. the Mephistopheles, you know? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> we don't, Mephistopheles is, is this bizarre character who, um, yeah, is, is, is at time he first comes in dressed like a friar when 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 <laughs> yes. when uh, Faustus first summons him and Faustus immediately says get out of here that that's an ugly shape you know that's a quote he's like that is so ugly get out of here and come back in a more pleasing shape and throughout the rest of the play um Mephistopheles has to keep reminding him who Marlowe or who Faustus's real master is Lucifer say like, hey mm-hmm. you, you can't look at heaven stop looking at heaven you gotta look down at Lucifer, mm-hmm. um, and then, but then Marlo's like, or so I'm, I'm mixing him up again in my mind always. Then Faustus <laughs> asks him, "Well, okay, well then, what? Tell me this answer to this question." And Mephistopheles is like, "Well, I can't really tell you that." And Marlo's like, or Faustus is like, uh, "Well, I control you." He's like, "Well, yeah, but," and so Mephistopheles, I think, is there as a continual reminder that Faustus is never in control. Despite how much he wishes he were, he never is because mm-hmm. Mephistopheles reminds him. He's like, I, well, I, I'm here to do your bidding, but Lucifer is my master. But also you didn't actually summon me. Uh, you know, I love right. that whole yeah. exchange of like, <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, I did it. I made you come here. Well, no, uh, I chose to come chose. because you were reading those books. He's like, but I read these books to summon you. He's yeah. like, yeah, but I chose to come. Right. Right. <laughs> but then, but then there's that moment, I think in act three, act two or three, where um, Robin, who is a servant or, or uh, an ostler, um, who's a friend of the servant of, of, of Faustus, he get he steals a book. He steals one of Faustus's books and then he summons Mephistopheles and Mephistopheles grumbles because he had to come. And so I was like, wait, does, does he have to come or does he not? And I think that's the great um, kind of morsel that Marlowe dangles in front of the audience. It's like, well, who is in control? Yeah. Which is again circling back to all this Calvinist, Calvinist tension yes, <laughs> of determinism, right? right. right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and and uh, how responsible, uh, or you know, how responsible can we even be for our actions? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in in con in contrast with Mephistopheles, you know, so he's the bad version, right? Of the fact that like, are you in control? But there's also, you know, there's a good angel, and at the very end, this old man who shows up in one act, he's like, "Hey, I'm here. Like, don't do this." There's all these outside forces that seem to suggest uh, Faustus has control over his fate, but then again, not even after he signed away his soul. They're yes. like, no, you can still you can still save yourself. Yeah, God, yeah. God literally tattoos on his arm the Latin words "homo fuge," which means "fly, man." I think of Dumbledore, right? Fly, you fools! Right? He says, "Get yes. out of here! Like, get get away!" But yeah. Gandalf, not Dumbledore. Crossing yeah, did I say Dumbledore? The, oh, the man. Old, yes, the, the old bearded <laughs> white wizard. <laughs> same, same, right? <laughs> Thank you, Gandalf. Um, but, um, yeah, the Mephistopheles. Um, but also, I like Belcher. Can I just say that? Mm-hmm. There, there's, the, like, there's the little devil that they summon that named Belcher, and I think that's one of my favorite devil names. It is a great name. <laughs> Yeah, just just really encapsulates a lot. Yeah, <laughs> when you when you have a character like who am I playing today? You're Belcher. Okay, I think I know where I'm I going th- with this performance. <laughs> I think you're going to be a bad character. Something tells me. <laughs> um, but but Mephistopheles, I, I think it's important though. At the end, is the play's last words, and in the A text, the play's last words are "Ah, Mephistopheles." Like why, why why would that be the last thing he says? I don't know. It's provocative, though. Huh. Yeah, 
I'm, I assume you've had some class discussions about about this this line of dialogue here at the end. Uh, is there anything that's like really resonated with you in terms of like trying to work out why that is how the play closes? I, I, you know, I, I, one of the things I do in class, I ask questions I don't have answers for. Yeah, and this is oh, one I, that's a go to move for me. Yeah, <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain of being a professor, yes. right? Yes, <laughs> and I don't know. I, I. I have I don't have anything smart to say about that. <laughs> I, and it, it perplexes me because the the whole play, Faustus is concerned about himself, his twenty four years of life, what he's doing. He he shuns his friends. You know the first, second, and third scholar. He shuns them. Um, he shuns society. He he just lives for himself basically. At the end, he says, "Ah, Mephistopheles." And maybe it's then at the end that that there's this realization that that either he summoned Mephistopheles or that Mephistopheles has come to him. So maybe it's an articulation of the concern of whether it's him or the devil that's damned him or God rather. And, mm-hmm. and maybe Mephistopheles is a representation of the, the ambiguity. He doesn't know, but there, but nonetheless there, there he is waiting for him. Yeah. I, again, I think this is just a great example of this play is very simple on the one hand, <laughs> you know, God yes. makes a deal with the devil and God, it comes yes. to regret it. That's it. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like, ah, I can sit here and ponder this last line uh, and, and like just have it kind of sit with me for a yeah. long time and not be sure that I've grasped what Marlowe was getting at. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for thank coming you. on, Bryce, and uh, talking about Dr. Faustus and Marlowe for a little while. Um, one thing yeah. that we like to do for our first-time guests is to ask the the dinner guest question. If you could have a dinner party and hang out with a handful of fictional characters, who would you want to hang out with for an evening? This question um, caused me some severe consternation. I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> um, only five? Um, the, you know, the first one that came to my mind, and this is going to reveal my true self, I guess, was, was Wedge Antilles, the unsung hero. Oh, the true hero hero of the rebellion. Yes. Thank you. The unsung (laughs) hero of the new Republic. That's all I wanted to say. Um, uh, I read, you know, Michael Stackpole's X-Wing series Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Oh, I just, I was looking at those with my kid on my shelf just the other day. There's yes. So wonderful. And so Wedge would be my first guest. Um, my second guest would be a character named Nari. It's from uh, uh, adult uh, fiction called City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. I'll say that totally wrong. But it's this mm-hmm. awesome uh, series uh, that's more of a kind of a Middle Eastern inspired fiction with uh, jinn and all sorts of, of cool um, Middle Eastern inspired mythology. Oh, I'm not um, familiar with that series. Yes, sounds, you should read it. It's, my, it's one of my favorites. Okay. Um, the Darrow from Red Rising would be another one. I don't know. Have you read Red Rising? Uh, no, it's it's one that I've had suggested to me, but I have not gotten yes. around to it. So could you give a quick like one sentence pitch for Red yes, Rising? Yes, it's by it's by Pierce Brown. It's a story of uh, Darrow is what's called a ruster. So he's this Martian born human who lives underneath the ground thinking that he's doing mining to produce the elements needed to uh, terraform Mars unbeknownst mm-hmm. to him is that there's actually a huge society flourishing on Mars's surface that he doesn't know about that he's basically serving as a slave. Um, and he's going to rise up against them. Oh, okay. Yes. It's good. I would then choose, I've, uh, Bard from the Witcher, um, mm-hmm. which the Netflix's uh, version of the video game. Uh, I've not played the game, but the, from the TV series, Bard's hilarious. And then the last one I would say, and you'll mock me for this, but you know, whatever, is Bartleby the Cat from Netflix's True, which is a cartoon for little kids. But Bartleby, mm-hmm. I, I watched with my four-year-old daughter. Bartleby's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> I, I, I don't know this one, but I have been thinking I, I might want Bluey if I had a chance yes. at this question yeah. from, yeah. from, you know, the delightful <laughs> Disney Disney Plus uh, children's cartoon. So I am not going to mock you for wanting yes. uh, children's cartoon characters. So Bartleby, here. yeah. You have to go look, watch an episode because Bartleby is just okay. delightful. Well, I've got young kids that are all into Bluey. So yeah, maybe I'll just see if we can slip over to yeah. True for a little bit. <laughs> So those are the five oh, that I would choose, I think. That's a nice eclectic grouping. I always like to like sit Thank back you. after I hear the list and think, okay, what are they going to talk about now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, from from Star Wars to uh, Mars to, yeah. uh, to, to a cat. <laughs> 
Well, thank you again, Bryce, uh, for coming on and helping us in this discussion of Dr. Faustus. That is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. You can also subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review if you do. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. for that rumble of my mic bump to finish. Okay. <clears throat>